I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we got some great topics to talk about today, but I want to go first to Scott for one of our favorite topics. Scott is really good on the chicken tax, as you all know from listening to this program. But today we're going to talk about bird flu. South Dakota Senators Mike Rounds and John Thune have urged there to be some action to prevent the vaccination of poultry flocks from becoming a barrier to exports for U.S. producers. What is this all about, Scott? Well, let's start with the farm boy perspective, which is when we talk about livestock, the the operative word is live, all right, that in many instances, and particularly with poultry, this is ducks, turkeys, chickens, basically, in terms of what's raised commercially. These critters are awfully susceptible to pneumonia and other similar respiratory diseases, and influenza hits these herds really hard. So you... You will see turkey. Are they herds or flocks? They're turkey farms. There's their poultry. <laughs> I, I really, they're flocks. I'd have to. I'm very into the flocks because the ravens are a flock. That's our, yeah. you know, that's our nickname. And so we're going to be flocking this weekend, hopefully, to all the way to the Super Bowl. You know, it's a murder of crows. The plural of crows is murder, just like a pride of lions. Oh boy, isn't that wonderful? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, but the, the, the Brits were good at this. But well, in hopefully, any case, hopefully we're going to murder some Kansas City Chiefs this yes, weekend. Yes, I would expect that hap- yeah. happen. But uh, with that aside, the, the turkeys, chickens, ducks get diseases like influenza, and it'll wipe out a whole barnyard. Okay. The, the entire chicken coop is you – know, the birds are all dead. Turkey farms. So it's, it's an important issue in terms of both the health of the animals – but also the products themselves. And much of American agriculture is devoted to modernizing practices. And so what has happened here is is American agriculture scientists have developed a vaccine program that will basically preserve these animals and help them resist influenza. So that's a good idea. Then Then the question about international trade comes in. And in this case, it's trade in live animals. It is really livestock trade, which happens quite frequently. Not it's not a majority of of the population of birds that get exported or imported, but it does happen. It is important to keep the channels open for this kind of of activity. And there's an agreement. There's a WTO agreement on sanitary and phytosanitary standards. Uh, now, sanitary refers to animal products, and phytosanitary refers to plant products. Now, what that agreement says is that standards for plant and animal health have to be scientific and based on a risk assessment. So in American USDA language, that would be reasonable certainty of no harm to humans. So that's the risk assessment. That's the standard. Having said that, there's a constant struggle against traditional practice between traditional practices or animals raised with traditional practices and those raised with the sort of modern commercial practices like American poultry. It's a branding problem for the modern poultry because, in fact, a barnyard full of chickens uh, is not all that healthy a way to raise animals. Just like if, you're, if your hog raising skills are, there's two of them in the backyard, 
that is probably not as good for the animals or the people around it as uh, as a large scale operations for pork production like are in the United States, where they're almost hermetically sealed from the exterior. And as a result, many fewer diseases in animals, many fewer diseases uh, in the humans that work with those animals. So it's a, it's a good issue. It's an important issue. There is resistance because the defenders of traditional methods are suspicious of the modern methods. Happens a lot in agriculture, rectopamine and pork. Uh, there are many, many controversies. Hormones in beef. Okay. Uh, there's a whole lot of these that have been controversial throughout the agriculture community since trade agreements began. So that's what's going on here. I think the vaccination issue is one where it is reasonable to be concerned about vaccinated chickens who actually carry the disease and can't be detected. Because it masks it. Then it would, it the ma vaccine would mask that they have the disease and you wouldn't know. Exactly. And that's... So it's not a matter of there being anti-vax chickens and... Provax chickens. Right. The chickens themselves have no choice <laughs> in the matter. <laughs> right. But but there there is concern. Now, those are concerns that are subject to scientific inquiry. And so we ought to be able to resolve it. Once again, the risk assessment is the key part of the SPS agreement. And so I think the senators are are make a good argument. Uh, they, they are trying to overcome romance versus reality here. Because there's a lot of romance around traditional practices uh, that, that is undeserved. So that's the story. And like I said, it's not an unusual story in agriculture. So but what are the senators actually proposing that we do? Well, that the Biden administration, particularly the Department of Agriculture, Foreign Ag Service, engage with foreign partners to ensure that standards about vaccination in poultry does not become a trade barrier, that, that there's acceptance of our methods as based in science subject to a risk assessment. So I think they're asking for something entirely reasonable. And what do the French have to do with this? Because they're, they're, they're playing a part as well. The French have problems with ducks. And they it's vaccinate as well. Problem. It's they, a big duck problem. They, they eat them in France. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which are delicious. Yeah. Okay. Pre when prepared properly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in, I think they may be an ally in this at the end of the day because they are having difficulty with other EU member states about their the way they're they're raising and protecting the animals. So. Okay, Bill. What about all this? Well, I'll spare you my rant about chlorinated chickens, although it's awfully tempted to do that for the third time. Yeah. The French role is interesting because they're part of the EU, and that means they're part of the common agricultural policy. There's no sense from the senators that this is an EU problem. Well, our chickens don't get in there anyway because they're chlorinated. But uh, if Those we Those are dead chickens that are chlorinated. The livestock, the live chickens are, uh, are not chlorinated. Do they get into the EU? That's a good question. That's one yeah, for I'm, a follow-up next well, week. I would disagree with Scott on, on one point, I, yeah, and that was the pigs and the chickens. You know, the, they may be the large farmers, they may have them hermetically sealed, but what that means in practice is they're in cages where they can't sit down and can't turn around. I'm, I'm not sure the pigs are happier uh, in a big center. Uh, the, the pigs are probably happy if there's two of them in the backyard. Um, that's probably uh, not a moneymaker necessarily, but uh, who knows? I mean, I my neighbor had chickens for a while, and it took about three years for the eight to end up being zero. One was actually carried off by a very large bird. Uh, the, the neighborhood fox got probably two of them, uh, and various diseases got the rest of them. Welcome, it's not a winning combination. Welcome to traditional agriculture. But once again, it's health and not happiness that we're going for here. 
Got it. Well, easy to say, you're not a chicken. Um, I just thought I thought it was interesting because it's a case where if you come back as a chicken in another life, you will thank Bill for yes. your comfort. Yeah, I, I want it to be super. I care chicken. about I care about you as a chicken, Scott. Thank you. I don't want you to be <laughs> confined. You know, um, I thought it was interesting in a way. It, it, it's a little bit like the the chlorinated issue in the sense that the United States is trying to produce clean produce and, yeah. and clean poultry. And in doing so, we may end up running afoul, as it were, of trade barriers. And I think what the senators are proposing is is, is reasonable rather than some dramatic step of retaliation or something. Let's see if we can get our agreements to permit vaccination. And the problem, of course, is exactly what Scott said, that vaccinated chickens can have the virus uh, and mask the symptoms. So the export of the live chickens may actually, even though they're vaccinated, may not actually be healthy. Yes, that's a question we can answer with research. So, But that's the right uh, – that's what the senators are proposing. I think that's wise. Okay. Well, speaking of the Europeans, um, there is a new EU economic security package Bill, what do you make of the commission's actions? Were they strong enough? And does this show any weakness of Brussels to affect decisions over their individual states? Well, I think that's the key issue. And this is a continuation of a struggle that goes back a long time. Uh, And this particular case, the elaboration that they put out earlier in January is essentially a clarification of a larger proposal they put out last year. And they're continuing to try to refine it. And one of the problems they have is that when you start talking about economic security, the word security encompasses a lot of things that are in the jurisdiction of the member states and not in the jurisdiction of the commission. In particular, export controls are administered and and the licensing that goes with them are administered by the member state governments and control or regulation of investment, uh, inbound investment is a member state activity. Presumably, if there were to be regulation of outbound investment, which they don't yet do, but this is a part of the proposal, at least to study the problem as part of the proposal, that would probably be under the jurisdiction of the member states as well. And so there's this contentious, uh, that may be strong a word, but this tension uh, between basically the center and, uh, and the member states. The member states guard their individual authority zealously. They ceded trade policy authority to the commission a long time ago, and they have resisted ceding more authority. Uh, The commission's view has been that it's important if you're talking about economic security and technology transfer, it's really important for all the member states to speak with one voice and have one rule. Because if you don't and you have an open market, that means stuff that the Germans might not license, say, to China, can be very easily exported to Italy or to Malta or to Cyprus, uh, which might not have the same export control rules, and they could go on from there to China legally. Uh, And so it's in the commission's interest not to let that happen. So a lot of what they proposed is basically for more coordination and try to get uh, do things to get all of the member states to line up First of all, to respect existing multilateral regimes where the EU is a member, but then getting the member states to reflect their membership because the, the regimes have control lists, you know, and if you belong to the Vostar arrangement, uh, then you're supposed to be controlling consistent with that arrangement. Uh, what uh, the EU wants to do is make sure that its members are, are lined up. They also <clears throat> have proposed uh, basically a consultation process 
with the member states to identify risks from outbound investments on a narrow set of technologies. This is not that different from what the U.S. has proposed. Uh, We've not seen the U.S. end product yet. Uh, uh, President Biden proposed this in in August. Uh, And uh, with a very long comment period and a very long uh, uh, contemplation period in the government after that, the EU is going through the same thing. They're a little bit behind us, but it's the same process. And the issue is going to be to try to get everybody on board. Part of this is also a proposal for supporting uh, research and development involving technologies, presumably new technologies with dual use potential. That's the way to get everybody on board is to identify the things that you want them uh, to control. They've also recommended measures aimed at enhancing research security, which has been an issue in the United States too. basically universities, research institutions that engage in research into uh, semiconductors, biochemistry issues, genetics, things that have potential security applications. Once again, you want all the states to be regulating these things in the same in the same way. So a lot of what they're what they've done here is not fiat. You know, they've not proposed new EU-wide controls because they don't have the authority to do that. But they proposed a series of of smaller steps trying to get everybody on the same page, uh, which is a good thing. But it's going to be a struggle because the member states may be on the same page policy-wise, but they want to protect their prerogatives at the same time. So this is a work in progress. Well, I think they've identified a problem that's real. That problem is competitiveness. European competitiveness is in real trouble. Some of that is due to the higher energy costs they're facing. Some of that is their own decision-making. Some of it is their source of cheap energy was Russia, natural gas, which because of Ukraine is no longer. But whatever the reasons, there is a serious competitiveness problem in the European Union. And focusing on ways to increase economic security to the extent that that it helps address this competitiveness problem would be useful work. In my own view, the most important economic initiative of the entire history of the European Union is the single market which was roughly 30 years ago. And the single market badly needs a second act. I don't think this one's it. That's uh, So while they've got the problem right, I don't think they've got the solution right. And my real question here is there's a tendency for bureaucratic infighting. I don't know how else to say it. There's no polite way between member states and the commission over an issue called competence. Bill alluded to this, and usually when they identify issues like this and the commission itself in Brussels starts talking about specific consultation plans and things like that, the underlying agenda is competence. And uh, you can spend a lot of time fighting about those things. We had the so-called Singapore issues, which drug down discussions for years in the World Trade Organization, where a lot of the European position was about what what do we have competence in in the commission and what what is the member state. Um, There are security issues and Bill's right about about high-end technology issues. The the Dutch company ASML is by far the leading lithographic company in the world. They're they're making the equipment that makes the high-end ships. So there are firms like that that where there's a genuine concern about security technology. The investment investment protocols, I don't know what that does except deter investment, which is probably the wrong direction. So correct about the problem. You got a problem of competitiveness. We'll see how it plays out. I, I, I worry that this will degenerate into infighting among officials 
instead of helping to fix that problem. Yeah, I, I think that's the way it's going. One of the things the, the commission proposed uh, this month, which is actually rather clever, is to introduce uniform EU, meaning all 27 controls, on items that are that have not been included in the uh, multilateral export regimes, which really means the Vassenaar arrangement, as the EU puts it, due to the blockage by, quote, certain members, unquote, which is code for Russia. Uh, Russia is a member of the Vassenaar arrangement and has started in the last couple of years objecting to efforts to expand the scope of controls, particularly over things that might affect them. And so the EU, I think, quite naturally is suggesting, why don't we make sure that all of you are on the same page with respect to this universe of items because the regimes are not covering them. At the same time, this is a little bit sneaky because it's a way for the EU basically to assert control and say, we're going to prepare this list and we want all of you to agree to do it. From the member state point of view, that may be, this is the first step of the EU trying to take over the whole thing. So was there anything in these initiatives that they released that surprised you guys? No, because it's a continuation of what they came out with uh, last summer. It's really impelled, I think, by Russia and the Russian invasion of Ukraine and China and the realization that they need to be tougher on these things. I think the difficult issue for them, which will also be an issue that we're dealing with, is is regulating outbound investment. They don't do that. We don't do that. Both sides have proposed uh, basically a dialogue uh, process. Ours is going to go into probably the second half of this year. They've proposed, the EU has proposed a three-month stakeholder consultation followed by a 12-month monitoring and assessment of outbound investment levels at the national level. In other words, they're going to do more research, have more conversations. That's not a bad idea, but what it means is there's not likely to be anything happening on this in really either country until 2025. So it's going to take a while, and it will be controversial for the reason that that Scott said. It's telling companies uh, where they cannot put their money, and companies are not necessarily going to be happy about that. Nobody likes that. Well, the irony, of course, is that if you're going to aim at China, which is what a lot of this is really about, though they don't mention the word. Dancing around uh, that. American investment in China is tanking anyway. Uh, Not because of anything the government has done, but because companies, we've talked about this before, companies are reassessing the risk and concluding the risk of doing business in China has gone way up uh, and they're looking elsewhere. And despite the Chinese telling us, hey, this is a great place to do business, the market doesn't say, doesn't think it is right now. That's, That's the message. It's a great place to do business. And I think the Western companies, not just the Americans, are not are not stupid about this. And it's a question of, you know, watch what we do, not what we say. Mm-hmm. And, and what the Chinese say is, we love you, you're welcome. What they're doing is raiding Western businesses and not letting Western uh, employees leave the country and otherwise harassing Western companies. And CEOs look at what they're doing and say, you know, do I really want to uh, take on that additional risk? So what, so what does this all mean for the United States? Europe is, you know, trying to get its act together. We seem to have our act together a little bit ahead of them. So wh- what what does this mean for us? Well, I can tell you the one issue that I expected to see here and don't find that I hope we're working on, and that's productivity and services. If you really want to work on productivity in an economy that's structured the way the United States and the European Union are, uh, which is basically 75 or 80 percent of employment is in services, you ought to focus on those big areas and find ways to improve productivity. 
and you ought to address the the oppor- the opportunity of AI to do just that. I mean, that's the way probably the, the, the early edge usage of AI is to improve labor productivity in services. It doesn't even get mentioned in the European paper, uh, neither AI nor the, uh, ser- the, the efficiency and productivity in services. Uh, I think we're working on it. I hope we are. Certain, certainly, the services industries are contemplating how to do this. But that, for me, is the missing piece. The EU is working on AI through separate a separate process. Um, it's a little, I think, too early, at least for me to say where how that's going to come out. Uh, it's part of their regulatory approach that we've talked about in the past. The Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, the Cloud Act, the Data Act. There's going to be an AI act as well. Most of these, uh, at least the Scholl chair, is criticized for essentially discriminating against big American companies and doing so in a way that will actually um, increase the Chinese presence in Europe, which I don't think is in their interest or in ours in in the high-tech area. The AI case is a little bit different, uh, and I think that we are closer to where they are, but we're all feeling our way on that particular issue. Give them hell Scholl chair, right? Well, we've been trying to do that. We've written 13 papers on that subject, and we've got a, a major one coming out, a little commercial here. Yeah. Heard uh, it first here on the trade, guys. Soon, but not soon enough. We're uh, developing a policy tracker to look at 30 countries plus the EU on what they're doing on digital issues, what regulations and rules and laws they're coming out with. And we'll be tracking over a year with monthly updates what's going on in each of these countries. And we'll be writing about it. We'll be producing analytical pieces. That's a mighty fancy tool that a bunch of people in the United States government, I am sure, will look to as a resource. Hope so. Indeed. Well, speaking of friends, let's talk about friendshoring. Guys, what exactly are we talking about? When we talk about friendshoring, we keep hearing this term all the time. I don't totally know what it means. I, I what does it mean to you guys? Well, I think the, one of the pro- that's one of the problems. Nobody knows exactly what it means. <laughs> right. And there was recently a conference in at the Chicago Fed held where this came up, and one of the comments from several different panelists there was the United States needs to define the term and explain exactly what it means. Not to mention define who our friends well, are. Well, that's, right? that's, that's where it begins. Who's, yeah. who's a friend? Right. And they made several points about, you know, the, the United States appear, uh, periodically says these are friends. Uh, friends are countries with whom we share values. And then okay. period. So what does that mean? And uh, some of the panelists point out that we have major economic and security ties with friends that don't necessarily share our values. Saudi Arabia being a good example. Sure. Uh, probably one of the the, uh, the best examples. Uh, so what is Saudi Arabia a friend? We'll have to ask Secretary Yellen. I believe it was she who coined the term. She's, of course, a former chair of the Federal Reserve Board. And Well, we certainly want Saudi Arabia to be our friend. Yes, but that gets back to the criteria. This is a, a country that murders journalists, yes. among other things. Yes. Yes. Well, when when the government decides what friend shoring is, I'll figure out wh- whether we shore with friends. It's a it's a good <laughs> idea in economic terms, and uh, we wrote about this in the context of the um, pharmaceutical sector a while back. Although we called it nearshoring, but it really is you know let's look for places and we didn't and we did not define it in terms of values and ethical compatibility. We defined it in terms of places where uh, there was manageable risk. 
where where would you go where you were con- confident that you could develop secure sources of, of supply and you could develop supply chains that were secure, that they weren't going to cut you off for political reasons, uh, and that where you could go and have a reciprocal relationship where, you know, the other country would promise, you know, respect our IP, you know, continue to supply us. We would do the same to them. Uh, So we defined it more in economic terms. And because we use the word near, we look primarily at destinations in the Western Hemisphere, um, of which there are plenty to choose from. Um, The friend-shoring idea seems to gravitate more toward countries that are sort of morally compatible with us. And that's a much more fraught discussion. Well, right, because we we have to decide, I guess, whether these countries have to share our ideological values or simply be helpful partners for U.S. security and commercial interests. That's why, you know, Saudi Arabia is a good example of that. Well, maybe the more comforting expression is de-risking. There's been a lot of discussion of de-risking supply chains, and uh, that's sort of a similar idea, certainly in terms of the reliability of the partner, perceived reliability of the partner. Um, And I would just note that the Bank of International Settlements uh, in October published a report on what was really happening in de-risking. And while the phrase is is comforting, what's actually happening is supply chains may be no more resilient as a result of this, the so-called de-risking, what the bank's researchers found is that what what is happening is supply networks are, are lengthening. The chains are, are getting longer and not more dense. What that means is increased complexity in the production process because you have more actors, more sub, sub-assemblers or suppliers or whatever it might be. For me, the, the root problem is scale production was proven in China, is proven in China. If you want to do any assembly, any production at scale, China can do it. Almost everywhere else, it's not so much proven. It's possible, but it takes investment. It takes development. It takes a lot of work on the part of the integrating company. So whoever's product is in final assembly, all those suppliers have to be qualified, how big they can get and at what pace is really difficult to manage. So uh, I think that is that that's the issue to watch. And what happens when we try to de-risk supply chain by moving out of China? And can we actually we'll have come up with different supply chains? The Bank of International Settlements says longer, less dense. Um, the question is: Is it any less risky? And we don't know. Well, this is interesting because there's also data from UNCTAD, uh, the United States United Nations Committee on Trade and Development, that suggests the opposite: that in trade with bilateral trade with countries that are geographically close is actually increasing, and trade with countries that are geographically distant is declining. So, I think their take on this is that that supply chains are are changing in a condensing direction. I think the one thing you can say about it is, well, two things. One thing you can say about it is that, uh, is what we said before, the globalization is not going away, but it's rearranging itself. 
And one of the ways it's rearranging itself is that companies are looking for uh, more secure supply chains. That's what de-risking is about. And that does not, by definition, mean means closer. But if you think about it from an American perspective, it, it often does end up meaning closer because people look particularly at Mexico as, a, you know, a good place to locate for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's problems with Mexico, but uh, it's, as we've predicted on this program in the past, it's one of the, really the two big winners as, as people leave China, the other one being being Vietnam, which is not that much closer. But um, that's one change. It's rearrangement. The other change that I thought was fascinating, I think this is from IMF data, is that while there's um, a clear trend of uh, Western companies either leaving China or creating new capabilities somewhere else that are parallel, it also appears there's data that suggests Chinese companies are doing the same thing. Uh, and they're moving to Vietnam, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. And one question is, are they reassessing the risk of staying in their home country? Uh, are they encountering the same kind of political problems that we are? Or are they? is this just changing economics? You know, it's been true for a number of years that wage rates in China have been going up. The population last year shrank in absolute terms. Uh, the working population is, is shrinking. They may just be moving to lower wage countries, but they may be moving uh, for political reasons, but to me, the interesting thing is they're kind of doing the same thing that the Americans are doing. And again, it's globalization rearranging itself. Businesses are not stupid about this. You know, they look for the opportunity to maximize profit and maximize growth. And the Chinese are no different than anybody else. So, guys, what's the next step if we want to make friendshoring a viable long-term strategy? Well, I think we got to get beyond the bumper sticker. The phrases are nice. But uh, as Bill just pointed out, research is conflicted at the moment about what's actually happening. Uh, and I do think this is one where, where further study and further examination, uh, we're ought to make, we ought to make sure we're actually achieving what we set out to achieve and just calling it something that sounds like a nice expression uh, probably isn't enough. There's a country and Western song about this. Find out who your friends are. <laughs> and uh, I forget who sings it, but um, they all sing it. Um, Every country in Western Star has a version of that song. I, I think. know who yeah. your friends are. Yeah, uh, I think it, you know the people in, in Chicago are onto something here. If you're going to talk about friendshoring, if you're going to have a policy of friendshoring, you really need to be clear to business about who your friends are. Uh, and I don't think government necessarily has the last word on that. Companies have the last have the last word on it. But what the companies were saying in Chicago was, give us some guidance. You know, if you if that's what you want us to do, tell us who you're who thinking about. Yeah. yeah. Tell us who they are. All right, guys. Well, I don't know if we've solved friendshoring today, but we definitely have gotten beyond the bumper sticker. And we solved the chickens. I mean, you know, so. Hey, um, a lot of work for one day. I'm absolutely. Say we're making progress. Absolutely. All right. Well, this weekend, go Ravens. Uh, I'm assuming go Lions. Gosh, the people in Detroit, they sure deserve. Oh, my I'm for the underdog. Go Lions. Long-suffering yes. fans. Yeah, long-suffering, um, great, great fans. And an impressive performance. Very impressive. past weekend's game. Very impressive. Well, I'm very nervous about the Ravens, but I know it's going to be a good game either way. Guys, thanks as always. Great discussion, and we will be back next week. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. 
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.